What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to say thank you before we begin to all of our patron supporters out there in the interweb and all of our Academy members at the Bestseller Academy. If you are interested in starting with the Bestseller Academy, we are opening the doors again at the early September. So mm. pop along and get on the wait list now, folks. You've got to get on the wait list if you would like to get notification of when the doors are open. And that's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Mr. Stay, we have a humdinger of an interview today, don't we? Yeah, we should really just get on with this because this is um, this is one of those interviews that when it starts, you think, okay, author got a book out talking about blah blah blah, and then then it gets, oh really, oh really, oh really, this is an absolute cracker. Uh, so we got Scott Kershaw, uh, who has a new book, The Game, which is a really cool high concept thriller debut. It's got a little bit of Squid Game, a little bit of Saw, though not as gory, um, but he's had a really unusual route into publication. Uh, Scott attended uh, a, a school which was underperforming and has since been closed in Cleethorpes, and he had little in the way of qualifications. But then he signed up a, as a, a sort of mature student at a local college, basically starting from scratch. He'd always enjoyed writing, and uh, he managed to you know, get a first honours class degree in creative writing. And so his journey is fantastic. He self-published a book. He's co-written with another author. Uh, we discuss all sorts of stuff. We talk about high concept ideas, how working with another author can help your career, why rejection is not the end. And we talk about our old friend, imposter syndrome. <laughs> brilliant. Hello. Well, we're just going to dive straight in because this is a brilliant interview and listen to Mark chatting with the amazing Scott Kershaw. Scott Kershaw, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm very good, Mark. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you for asking. Uh, the game, w which is uh, such a brilliant, brilliant high concept idea, is really very, very exciting. And um, tell us about your new novel, The Game, and how it came about, because it's got a really, really good high concept pitch. Okay, so the game follows these five unrelated people in different parts of the world. And in one day, they all have a loved one abducted. And all they've got to go off is a series of text messages that basically force them into more violent and unpleasant competition with one another. Um, and I think it's just these five really ordinary people forced to investigate why they're involved in it and try to win back the loved one all against a really high stakes, ticking clock kind of scenario. Now, uh, high concept ideas. We're constantly asking authors how these ideas come along. Is this 
did this just arrive out of the blue through the ether arriving in your brain fully formed or was it something you sat down and figured okay i need need a commercial high concept idea and i'm brainstorming how did it come about for you there was a bit of both. I know a lot of and a lot of authors you have on the podcast say that it's usually like from two different ideas that make a book. And I guess it's similar to that. It was it was a very conscious thing as part of a bestseller experiment. You know, it was <laughs> I wanted it was it was like a I wanted a high concept thriller, and I'd had these different half baked ideas for a long time. So you know, back in like the uh, the old craze of torture porn films of like Saw and Hostel and all those um yeah I used to always watch them and but it was always just very much about the traps and these really elaborate yeah. over-the-top traps and that's why you enjoy watching them and I guess I kind of just wanted to flip that on its head and I always wanted something about yeah just more of a character-based thing and okay let's just bring it a bit more down to earth make it still far-fetched enough to be a fun ride but yeah just very much about the characters instead and what how little you can how little of a machine you need to force people into it i guess you know like by just kidnapping someone they love you can get them to do pretty much anything so there was always like there was always that idea and then i've always liked just the idea of games in general and you know kids games kids games are really dark man like kids are dark in general i think i ain't got kids so i'll probably sound really cynical but no, you know not. there's something yeah there's just something horrible about kids when they're playing man like if you actually watch kids and there's something about being it you know like you watch a group of kids playing and there's there's something really ostracizing about being it in the group yeah. like and kids in general play really nasty games you know they you're dead when you play a kid's game. You know, you always hear little kids running around going, you're dead. So yeah, there were just kind of all these little ideas I've had over a while. And um, I guess they all just kind of fell into place at the right time. And that was it. I was kind of just, I just applied into all these different characters. And yeah, that's it. You make it sound so easy. Um, <laughs> let's talk about those characters because you're right. There is a, you know, those Saw movies and those Gorn movies, they... They are more about the puzzle. And, of course, they have to, you know, they're designed to captivate an audience for 90 minutes, maybe two hours, uh, whereas you're writing 80,000, 90,000 words and you need to keep, you know, the reader engrossed for that. So you do need to dig deep with your characters. Were there archetypes that you thought, okay, these are these are going to be fun people to make their lives a misery or how, how did those characters come about? So in, like... Because it's set in all different locations. In the year up to writing it, I'd actually been to all those different places. Um, but it's quite weird because I went with like not a lot of money. I went to some quite fancy places, so like New York City and Paris. And people, you know, they're so well known for being these really liberal and beautiful places. And if you go with like no money and kind of bum around the city, there's very different people that live there. Um, and I had pretty unpleasant experiences for like in some of the places. And I kind of just wanted to take, okay, like let's look at a semi-successful, very ordinary guy in New York City who lives a picturesque life and what's he hiding? Like, you know, people, there are working, working class people like me everywhere who are just trying to make the best of their lives. And, um, but yeah, lots, everyone hides something like, 
especially, you know, in a thriller, that's what's fun about it. You get to look at it and think, okay, there's a guy on the subway, he looks pretty normal, dressed is quite nice. What's he hiding? And I think, like you say, there's these elaborate traps in very much in the genre and not the point of it. I think the most dangerous thing that we face is often the traps that we set ourselves and the things that we choose to do and the things that we hide. And as the book progresses, it becomes the game is very much played between the characters as opposed to the game that they're being forced into. It's more a game of hiding from one another and hopefully the reader's kind of dragged along for that and just trying to find out what they're all hiding. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was it. And I think it was difficult as well, though, and I know quite a few writers you've had on have sort of spoke about this, but it's hard writing on characters around the world with, especially in something really fast-paced like Thriller, you want to turn heads and you want to give a roller coaster ride, but then you don't want to come across as exploitative of different people or you don't want to kind of write from the outside. And it's, it's difficult to do, especially at the minute. I think it's uh, increasingly difficult, but hopefully if you if you do it with enough care and consideration for your characters and really let them grow on the page, I think, I don't know, I enjoyed doing it. I, it was nice working with all different characters. Some were based on people I know and, you know. Was there, was there any yeah, any yeah, particular sure. any character in particular that caused problems that was that was difficult to bring to life? Um, let's see. I think all characters. I found it. It was almost like a uh, an exercise in writing for me. Just to, I wanted to make them like me because all people are kind of the same. But I very much wanted to take different people. So, you know, like a. a gay middle-aged man or a really young naive girl yeah they had to to jump into that skin but I think that's the fun of it and the enjoyment of it I think you're writing fiction for a reason and like I said as long as you don't you know use them or use certain people in a way that is unpleasant you know it's it's an enjoyable process I think that's one of the nice things about writing it's being able to just tell different stories and hopefully learn something yourself while you're writing it, especially as a new writer. I mean, yeah, it's just that's the fun of it, I think. But. Let's let's talk about your um your journey to publication because you, you have a first class honors degree in creative writing, but you came to it via an extraordinary route. Can can you tell us how how you got started uh, with that with that degree? Uh yeah, so I left school um without really much of anything. I was predicted really high grades, but in the last couple of years at school, I sort of just binned my education. Uh, I stopped going to school, just wasn't a, a great member of society, I guess. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, after school, I mean, the day I picked up my grades, I remember all the teachers literally just standing, like shaking their heads in a line. Like they were just so disappointed that I'd, yeah, I was like predicted to do this, really gifted student and I just completely just didn't care um I mean I went and picked him up at like 9 a.m turned up in a dressing gown with a beer (laughs) yeah literally did like just walked to the school around the corner just showing off just being a 16 year old idiot um so yeah then I had like nothing though um yeah then just kind of out in the world I moved out at 18 um had nothing. I just worked so many lousy jobs. So I'm like, every horrible job you can think of, I 
probably done that. And then at the time, uh, the Labour government used to have this like scheme. It was called Connections, and they'd just reach out to people in like, uh, you know, on council states or working class communities. And they got in touch with me. They like tracked me down, um, sent a letter to my mum's house, and was like, "We've looked back at your school record, and you were predicted to be really good. Like, what have you done in the last sort of three years? Like, would you like to come in for a chat?" And I went in. I wasn't gonna go. I was just like, oh, "Screw that!" And then I kind of thought about it, and I was at work, and I was working outside a bar at the time. I used to clean outside a bar every morning, so literally every day I was just cleaning up vomit. And I was just doing it one day, and I was like, "Oh, I should really give them a call." <laughs> so I went in, and they were really sound. They um, they just said, "Look, we can get you into college on basically a pity course. Um, it'll be in journalism. Could you like writing? You like music?" why don't you try being a journalist? So I went there, but I was in this class with like loads of 16-year-olds who did not want to be there. Um, while I was there, I was kind of just obviously wanting to be a journalist. I was writing a lot. Um, and a piece of my writing somehow got passed along this chain of teachers. I guess they're like, this guy was like, oh, this is really good writing. Passed it to his friend who passed it along. And then the lecturer of the degree course at Hull Uni just got in touch with me and asked for a meeting and I went to him and I was still just an absolute little idiot and uh, he was just really cool he kind of laid it on the line and he was like look I know you don't have the UCAS points or anything really but you can write like you can write you just need to sort yourself out like I'll give you a chance but if you come on just don't let me down and he did he took me on his course um and that was it. I did the degree. Yeah, I got first. Um, and he was just—he was great. He's—he's he's a professional writer. He's called Chris Dow. He's a great guy. Um, he was just so harsh with me. And I think sometimes you just need that. There, like the first time he edited my stuff was horrendous. And like I remember writing it and handing it up, and I was—I was so cocky. I was like, I know I can write. I've got on this degree handed it to him and he just literally tore it to pieces and I was just fuming like he actually just ripped it to bits and was like this is garbage you're just so full of it you think you're Jack Kerouac like you're not <laughs> um, and yeah I like walked out and I was like oh, this. like I'm not doing this <laughs> I'm not having some old man tell me what to write um, but no and he was he was harsh and I think that's really helped me over the years when you start writing especially so many people who want to write and now that I'm actually getting published they send me their writing and stuff and they're like we well, have a look and the minute you start criticizing them they just hate it will not take it um I think that's such an important thing probably the degree itself wasn't really useful in terms of you know on paper like applying for obviously you don't apply to be a writer so mm. that itself the degree wasn't incredibly useful especially because I got a degree, but I still had no GCSEs. So I've never been able to get a job, like a proper job since and I'm now 33. I can't get a job anywhere. I can't get a job teaching. Like I can't get a proper job because I don't have GCSEs still, even though I have a degree. It's weird. Um, but yeah, what it did teach me was just take the criticism and like take it. They know what they're talking about and they do need to help you. People criticize you generally to help you get better i mean not people in the street who scream at you for walking down the street <laughs> your hair cut right but i mean like people who take the time to read your work 
if they see something in you and they give you the notes, just take it, man. And, like, and yeah, so that was great. And that was it. That's how I got my degree. That's incredible. That is amazing. There's so many like second chances there, aren't there? You know, it's uh... yeah. But then I think all credit to you for seeing them what they were. I know you've referred to yourself as a 16 year old idiot, an 18 year old idiot, but there was credit to you for going. Now I'm going to do that. I'm going to give it a go. I mean, that is because when I was 18, I I I was fed up with education. I I I was offered a place at uni and 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 walked away. And I'd never come back. But, you know, it's, um, I, I know that feeling and I know, and I, there's a part of me sort of kicking myself later in life and wondering if what would have happened, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I think you saw something scary and you gave it a go, which is, I mean, do you, was there, was there a feeling of fear or? Uh, strangely, probably the, and this sounds really bad to say it, but it was probably embarrassment. Now that'll sound really crazy to people listening, but, the community that I was in, in Grimsby, um, you know, all of, well, most of my friends are in very, they're in manly trades, you know, they're all electricians or plumbers. The other quarter of them uh, went on to be drug dealers or criminals. So it was, yeah, it was more like, almost like shame. It was, it was just really, I think they had my back in the end, but at first it was like a fear of, I've got a kind of, go to them all and be like i'm going back to school it was just a really weird time and that kind of lasted though even through the degree and certainly when i then started writing what my first failed book but that was even weirder because by then we were in our early 20s and you know going to your friends who were they it's one of those communities where you're successful or like any i suppose your success is measured in money and so if you go to them you say i'm starting to write novel they go right what does that pay I'm like well I don't really pay like it's on my time and say okay well well I'm not going to take mate I'm like well I don't know a couple of years and they just I mean they're supportive now like they've been you know well some of them but it's still the same now if you know when I'm going around my hometown I've got literally the game comes out in two weeks on Thursday and I don't tell people I'm a writer still so when I'm like back home, if people ask what I'm doing, I'm just like, ah, oh, just bit, you know, bit of cash work here and there. Like it's a, it's a very strange community, and I think it's people always ask me when when are you going to feel like you are a writer because you are a writer, and I'm like, yeah, no, no, but just not yet. I know it sounds crazy, but just not yet. When I can afford a car that's you know not falling apart, then I'll say I'm a writer, I guess. Scott, take it from me. You're a writer. You are a writer. Take it from me. It's absolutely true. <laughs> I know. I know that thing. I mean, I've got you know my my. I come from a working class background, and there are still now. I have to explain to relatives what I do. You know, and I've had yeah. you know five books out and a couple of films, and it's like you know, but and, and there is a kind of yeah, but there's a feeling that. If you're not earning big money, then you're probably being exploited, which is probably true. Yeah, uh, and, and just and just how the whole thing's because it is publishing is such a middle class, middle to upper class kind of um, uh, profession. Uh, I mean, yeah. coming coming into publishing and meeting editors and agents. I mean, you, you were a cracking agency, a cracking publisher. You know, um, what were your? Did you? 
and we all get this, so it's it's okay. Uh, but did you did you get that sort of imposter syndrome? Did you kind of think, do I even belong here? Yeah, massively. I still do now, like honestly. Uh, but at first, it was very weird. I mean, I'm very lucky. It was people always say, you know, it's when I tell them this story, they're always like, oh, so it's another case of who you know and not what you know, which is I think entirely untrue because my whole career up to date to get to writing the game has been very much like the degree which is one person kind of just had faith in me mm. so the first novel I wrote when I was fresh out of uni I wrote a novel called Animus sent it off to agents you know I got the writer and artist yearbook like most that are out of writers I suppose do you get the big old fat yearbook I know most of them are online now but so I go through it with a pencil and yep I'm like, okay, so I finished the book. It took me, you know, I don't know, two years, three relationships. Like, <laughs> did it on my own time, send it off to all these agents. Um, and then Rory Scarf, who was at Furnace Lawton at the time, I was honestly expecting to wait weeks for the, you know, the rejection to start coming. He just replied within two days, left me a voicemail which I nearly didn't answer because I was on the run from so many debtors at the time. And it was a number I didn't recognise from London. And it, well, I didn't answer it. It rang and it left me a voicemail. And I was like, oh man, I'm not even checking that. And then <laughs> I did check it and it was Rory and he was just like, I loved it. I sent him the first 10,000 words or whatever. I love it. And Rory was just a great example of, yeah, sometimes you just need a guy, a, you know, people always talk down, well, not always, but often talk down agents and stuff and mm. especially again when i tell people back home about my agent they're like so he takes a cut of everything you do yeah but what does he do and i'm like he like he literally yeah he taught me so much just by having faith in me sometimes all you need is one person to just have faith in you and that book didn't sell and that was kind of crushing you know text like as you all know, the publishing world is so slow, man. Like, oh, yeah. you finish your book, you send it off, you get it accepted, and then you are checking your emails every hour for <laughs> months, literally months, just waiting. Like, every hour you're checking, like, any any minute now, it's going to come in like an answer. And, yeah, the book didn't sell, and Rory was just great. He literally told me, I remember the day it didn't sell, I was Good, man. It took quite, it had taken, I don't know, a year and a half or something of just going back and forth. And uh, Emily made it now, but she was at Hodder at the time. And she, you know, she kept saying she really liked it. And it'd go to her and I'd wait a while and they'd give me another round of edits. And I'd be like, is this happening? You know, I think this actually might be happening. And it didn't happen. Like, they just like, oh, no, it's not for us. And that is the point. I'd say to anyone listening, I know so many of your authors always say this on the show, but just do it again. Like, and Rory was really cool about it. He was like, you can either really keep pushing this and keep editing it and polishing it and polishing it and polishing it, and it could take years, or you just put it in your drawer, start again, dust yourself off and start again. Mm. And I did, and that is, that's the process that's brought me here. But yeah, it's very much, it was hard at first. It was weird, like going down to meet them for the first time in London I just felt so out of place and I'm like yeah. I mean everyone was great they were so welcoming but yeah you just sometimes yeah imposter syndrome you just walk in and you know I was in my I'd got a River Island suit for it even though it was just a really casual office 
yeah. like this really cheap, horrible suit. And I went in and I was like, yeah, it's just weird. You just don't feel like you kind of deserve it, I guess. Even though you do, you've done, like you say, you've done the way you you are right. You deserve it. Like, yeah. yeah, it's a strange feeling, especially the first times. Really yeah. weird. Yeah. It's like, um, it's almost like starting a new school. You're trying to figure out what the yeah, rules yeah. are. You're trying to figure out, you know, if I say this, am I going to get in trouble? You know, <laughs> if I answer back. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I remember, like, I remember him offering me a coffee, and I had, well, I can't remember what it was, but I had the coffee that every other person had, even though I didn't like it. But I was just like, no, yeah, I'd never, oh, I was a flat white, and I'd never heard of a flat white. And they all got a flat white, and I was like, yeah, I love flat white. <laughs> 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 And none of them had sugar, and I always have sugar in just a white cup of tea. And I was like, "No, I don't have sugar either." <laughs> Stupid stuff like that. You look back and you're like, "You've already got far enough. They don't care. They don't yeah. care what coffee you are." Like, yeah, you know, it's weird. Yeah. Oh man, I f- I feel it. Um, next up was a novel in 2019. So Animus, I think you self-published that in 2017 after the rejections. You self-published yeah. that. How did how did that go for you? What was uh, that experience like? <laughs> <laughs> it was uh oh man i know there are great examples of self-publishing and stuff and there was like this big wave at one point uh where you know who did you have on talking about it you had indeed message on from hq as well talking about it there was like this great crest of self-publishing at one point and i must have been on the back of that i missed that <laughs> the problem is with self-publishing right in my experience, people may argue with this, and for some people, like I say, it's great, but your book will sell to your friends and their friends, but how does it go any further? Like, you can keep hammering it on your Facebook, you can hammer it on Twitter. You can, I mean, I went to some levels. I, I thought it was quite cool. I printed out, like, a thousand business cards. So they had the cover, well, like, hardly anything they just had like a little snappy slogan on and this like logo that my mate had designed and then a qr code on the back so it's just this little business card with like a blood spatter on it and we went to cities me and my girlfriend and we just started slipping them in books in waterstones and no it was waterstones yeah so we just went around and like on the table books we just sat sprinkling them everywhere we'd go in bars and we'd just put these business cards on the table as we left the idea being that you pick one up, you scan the QR code, and it took you to the shop, to my Amazon page. And I think over all these efforts, you know, it probably sold 200 copies, like, because that's it, because it'll only go as far as other people. And it's very much, and I'm the same though, if I go on an Amazon page, even if I saw a book and I was like, it sounded great, and I went on it and I had 10 reviews and cost like 60p, <laughs> You know, yeah, I'd be the same. I'd just be like, well, why? Why bother? Right. So that's my experience of self-publishing. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. you live and learn, Scott. You live and learn. So up next in 2019 mm-hmm. was Beyond Reasonable Doubt, which you have a, a co-writing credit with Gary Bell. And I think he's at the same agency as you. So did they pair you up? How did how did this all come about? And, and tell us a bit about Gary. Okay, so this is, again, why it's great just getting one man like Rory, my agent, on your side. So, uh, yeah, Animus did sell. He said, start again. I went off. I actually started another book. So the second book, the first one didn't sell. Started the second one. Wrote 15,000 words. It's been another year or whatever. Yeah, about a year. 
before I even went any further, I just sent it to Rory and I was like, look, hey, remember me? Credit to him. I didn't think he'd even respond. Like I thought by now, you know, and Rory was really moving up fast. I mean, now he's director of the Blur Partnership, director of all literature. But so yeah, I was I kind of just dipped in this email. I was like, hey man, you said if I ever have another book, like get in touch. I've got 15,000 words of the book. What do you think of it? I sent it to him. Again, he was just so supportive, man. He just straight away had my back and he was like, no. <laughs> he was like, no, nah, I don't like it. <laughs> he did. He was like, nope, I don't think it's the right time. Like, I think it, it was very much, and your listeners should take this on pod. It was, um, I can't put this part. It was basically writing about the birthing rights of women. Um, and he was just like, it's not the climate for a man to be writing about it. He was yeah. like, you know, it's just, it's a very tricky thing to be going into. I think for a day, you want to be a debut novelist. I just don't think it's wise to do. And me being just a little old miss at home, I didn't even think about stuff like that. I was just like, oh, I just thought it'd be a cool story. But whatever. But so that was just shut down again. So that's like another year of writing just in the toilet. And, you know, my girlfriend at the time now is getting pretty impatient because I keep writing. Like I'm chefing as well at the time. So I'm working like 70 plus hour weeks coming home. If I get a day off a week, I'm just writing all day for no money again. Mm. So that fails again. Um, what Rory did say is, oh, but your writing's actually got loads better. Like, I don't know what you've done in the last year, but it just keeps getting better. Um, I said, okay, thanks. And then, like, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, maybe even just a week later, he rang me. I was on my way to a gig. Um, and he rang me and he was like, I've got a really weird idea for you, but I've just met a guy. It's like almost like fate that you got in touch last week. I've just met this really, really interesting barrister. Um, he's just got fascinating stories to tell. But, I just think he needs a bit of a um, a better writing voice. Like I just think he needs to be like he doesn't have any a lot of training in writing or anything. Like I think, and straight away I was like, oh no, like I don't think so. He's like a queen, a member of the Queen's Queen's Council. Okay, so QC. So he's like, yeah, he's the top boy. If your listeners don't know, he's the man in the horsehair wig in the old Bailey, you know, and a robe. And I was like, uh, I was just like confused that Rory had even suggested really because I was like, do you think I need a barrister? Like, what do you know? Like, what do you know about me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and he said, oh, no, like, honestly, this guy, yes, he's too soon. You know, he hangs out with a lot of uh, now ministers and stuff. And I was just like, it does not sound like my bag at all. And he was like, no, just trust me. He's like, so he's, a former convict for fraud. He grew up on a slum in Nottingham. He's got such a similar background to you. Like, I really think you'll get on, even though he's in his late 50s. So I went down to London to meet him, and we just got on like an absolute house on fire. It was just <laughs> so funny. He was like, just not what I expected at all. And his stories were just fascinating, like horrendous. I'd suggest anyone read He did um, an autobiography called Animal QC. It covers a lot of it by Gary Bell. So Gary's, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, he, you know, a lot of his stories are in his autobiographies called Animal QC. I'd recommend just for an interesting, you know, read it. Some great horrendous crimes he's worked on. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we just kind of sat together and we were like, let's do it. Let's write it. 
the downside for any of your listeners is once again, you're writing for no money. You're doing it all yourself. It's technically still a first book. Mm. So we had to write the whole manuscript, which takes another year. Um, he was really good about it. I mean, you know, the pros of writing in the modern age, as it were, uh, you can bounce back and forth quite easily. Bearing in mind, he lives way down south and um, in, I was in Grimsby still at the time. Collaborating won't be for a lot of people, but we got on really well. You know, he'd insert a lot of the real crimes that he's covered and I'd be like, that's great. We can fit that into a scene. Give it to me. I'll take it for a month. Bounce it back. We did several occasions where I went down to stay in his lovely house where we were like we'll just sit and smash out like a quarter of the book over the next two days and that didn't really work because we just got smashed um, <laughs> so that's yeah it was like I think he was making the most of having like that like I don't know I get the suspicion that it was the first time he'd had a working class young man like he was in his life for a while and he was right. just like I'd turn up and he'd just start slamming beers on the table and that's it we're just absolutely yeah <laughs> but it was uh, but it was good and then finally yeah it got sent out and uh, Bloomsbury Raven picked it up um, and it was great and it was very different though because it was more like it felt more like a writing job for me mm. as opposed to my book it yeah, felt yeah, very yeah. much like yeah like a job like I was doing his work. It went out in his name. I was very happy to do it. It taught me a lot about writing. It then taught me a lot about getting published, but it was Gary's bag. You know, I was just the, you know, we always say he was the face and I was just the guy behind the scenes. Like I was the guy in the chair just doing it. So, yeah, it was good. And like it got optioned by the BBC, which is great again, but, it, you know, it, it's never really felt like mine because it was very much his story to tell. Yeah. So this is a totally different with the game. It's a very different game. Hey, that, I mean that's <laughs> the thing is what you're getting there though. You're getting a a credit if you like. You you know you've you've crossed that threshold. You're published. You've you know you it's a traditional publisher. You've been through the process. So I guess for your agent that makes you it gives you that one notch on on the on the CV that then they can take out. So. Going on to the game, you know, you've you've talked about the thing of writing something, 15,000 words, take it to an agent. They go, no, uh, it's not right or whatever. Did you approach the game in a slightly different way? Did you say to them, okay, here are five ideas or here's an idea that I've got before I write it. Do you think it's a go? Or how did did you approach that with your agent? Yeah, so this is where I was really lucky. Oh, lucky. You know, I'd I'd put the years in, so that's unfair. But this is where just doing the job works like it's very much like a musician who plays the weddings at first but gets a reputation around town you know you co-write with someone you've got the credit you've got a little bit of they know something about you so yeah next time it comes around it was literally gary had a launch party for beyond reasonable doubt in london it was the next day i was on my way home driving back up from london pulled over the services and my agent had been in touch and he was like I think now's a good time. Um, HQ have Collins looking for a thriller. Like I know they're looking for a really high concept thriller. How would you feel about if we just smash something like an idea together? Have you got anything in the bank? And I was like, I, mean, I thought I had nothing. So I was just like, yeah, because of course you don't say no. <laughs> of course, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, you don't go, no, thank you. So I'm like at the service station, like, okay, like, what have I got? And then you actually start looking, you know, at all right as say it. But the best thing, whenever you even have half an idea or anything, just write it down, like, even in the notes of your phone or anything, get into that habit of anything, even if you're just walking and you see a tree that's fallen over and you're like, oh, I wonder what not that tree over. I'll write it down in my notes. Just, it's worth having these things because one day it'll get to a point where you might be noticed because of the job you've done and then they will do that. That does happen and it's happened since and, you know, now there's going to be a second unrelated book and we're in the same process again. They will do it. They'll, if you can prove you can write, there's a chance they'll just get in touch and be like, pitch me something and, you know, and I mean, a lot of new writers will be like, oh, poor you, get into that position. <laughs> but, you know, it's a great position to be in, of course, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's hard. If you're not Stephen King with 70 novels worth of ideas, like, you know, it's, it's quite panic-inducing. But, yeah, they were great, and I just said, and this is where it all comes full circle, because the person who was looking for a book was... Emily, who had been working at Hoddy years ago and had been interested in Animus and who I'd gone down to meet. So when Rory replied to her and he came in emails and he was like, do you remember that guy you met him years ago? Like, um, he's just had, he's co-written a book. How would you feel about him? And this, this is where it comes around because they remember you. Mm-hmm. So even though it didn't get published, and at the time, I was like, what a waste of money and time, you know. Even going to meet Emily, I hope she doesn't listen to she'll think I'm dead rude. But I remember when I went to meet her, I was dead poor. And the train cost £210 to <gasps> London and back. Yeah. For like a, well, I don't know, 45-minute meeting with her. Yeah. And I remember, like, at the time, that was like a month's wages or something. And I, I had to explain that, you know, to my girlfriend at the time. And she was just like, I can't believe you've gone all that way for an hour meeting. Like, what? And nothing was coming of it. You went and sold your butt. Flash forward 10 years and, you know, I'm now like 30. And she did. She remembered it. And she was just like, okay, yeah, let's give him a shot. Like, what's he got? She told me to go away and was like, write me something, write me 10 chapters, fast page chapters, because the voice you've used in Beyond Reasonable Doubt isn't really what we're looking for. Like, it's very classic crime. Mm. That's not what we're after. We're after something a bit more punchy. Um, and I was like okay so that was it I just went away wrote it sent it back and you know then sat there twitching for a few weeks waiting <laughs> she was like okay now we and this is the problem they take it and then they're like now we'll take it to the marketing team see what they think of the idea and you're just yeah. waiting still and yeah they did they took it which is great and then I just have to write it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think Scott you are the I know you said you had a lot of luck, but I think you are the personification of that Mark Twain quote, which is the harder you work, the luckier you get. I think you did put the hours in. I think you did, you know, making that journey, which bloody hell, 210 quid. What is wrong with this country? But, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, and also just to say that, you know, anyone who works for a publisher can come and see you, pay that, and they can claim it back on expenses as well. Just just putting that out there, yeah. publishers, that there's more outside. Of, there are people outside of London that you could visit them occasionally or you could do it over Zoom. Anyway, 
that's beside the point. Um, but yeah, I think I think you are reaping the rewards now. Um, Scott, it's been a real treat speaking to you today. Uh, yeah, this, thanks, man. No, it's our absolute pleasure. Folks, the game, get involved in the game. It's getting the most amazing reviews. I think it's going to be one of the hits of the summer. Uh, grab a copy and, uh, and enjoy it. And Scott, hope to speak to you again real soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Ray. Honestly, it's been great. God, it's not often that you hear a story of someone who struggled in school, didn't get any school qualifications, ended up with a university degree. It's yeah. just like amazing. But then still said, you know, it's hard to get a job. And I just think that this is such a brilliant example to to everyone out there who who maybe started life with you know m- multiple challenges and 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 always, you know, maybe, you know, born the wrong side of the tracks kind of story. Uh, I'm so it's so inspired by Scott's story, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a thing of um, if you come from a working class family, you, people don't expect you to to be a writer, you know, and because they don't necessarily come from that world, they don't know how it works, mm. you know. So they might think, oh, "Well, I have something to fall back." And this is something I'm, I will be eternally grateful to my parents for, because they were always very good at saying, "Okay, well, look, if you want to, because I wanted to be a bloody actor. I mean, talk about you know," uh, and they were like, "Okay, if you want to do it." It's going to be hard, you know, but we'll always support you. I remember only once my dad sat me down and said, because he was a school caretaker, and then he got another job, and then mum became the school caretaker. So, and But dad sort of, he worked for Surrey County Council, and he knew people, and he said, look, I can get you a job in trading standards, he says, you know, because it's, it's it could be, you know, because you, you could be sort of, tied into stuff that you like he's like it's a secure job it's a good pension blah 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 you know but he would never laid it on he never said oh you must do this and you must do that so it is one of these things i mean a, a lot of my family still haven't got the first bloody clue what i do or mm. how it all works or mm. whatever you know um but they they have always been supportive but it's as can be quite unusual you know and um even if you do become a writer you're kind of expected to write Miserableist, you know, it's grim being poor, you know, working class, you know, whereas I want to write about wizards and dragons and shit like that. So it's, um, so it is, it's, uh, it is, it is tough. And if you don't, and this applies, you know, as you say, to anyone who's had any kind of challenges in their life, you might have a disability, your, your heritage, your background, your race, your gender, um, you know, you might just think, I, I don't see myself in publishing, so do I belong? And, you know, the answer is, of course you bloody do. Uh, you know, get in there. And um, you are going to you're gonna have challenges. There might be more hurdles than most people have. But, you know, particularly with indie publishing as well, there, there's never been a better time. There have never been more opportunities to get your voice uh, out there and heard, you know? Mm. I think it's really fascinating as well. I think there's a real... Now, listening back to that interview, I think there was a real tipping point in Scott's career, and it was the moment that he got a complete and utter kick up the butt by <laughs> right when he got the harsh, harsh feedback and what he called a reality check. And it, it did remind me a little bit of our Ben Aronovich moment. And as fun as it is yeah. to talk about that, I think there's actually something very serious that we should focus on here, which is about mm. the value of someone giving you a good kick up the butt because. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think, you know, and I think, I think, I mean, I always talk about having real belief, 
having real belief in what you can achieve. Um, and, and that's, and I always encourage, um, you know, especially like younger, young adults, I encourage them, like, you've got to believe if you want to make this happen, you've got to believe, but you've, you've also got to get to the point where you don't become overconfident. You don't start to believe your own hype. Yeah. And it does, it did the way Scott was telling his story, it really sounded like he was really cocksure and he's like, yeah, I can do anything. I don't need to go to school and turning up <laughs> at school with a beer in his dressing, his dressing gown. gown. <laughs> just like <Legend>. the image <laughs> and the teachers, the image of that. I was just like, oh my gosh. But you know what? You, it, it, you know, it's great that Scott talks about that because there are lots. I literally just went to a graduation of my son's graduation in high school over here in Canada. And I could not believe um, of the near hundred people that walked on that stage, um, you know, th there was such a contrast. They all had little scripts, which, which they had kind of re, re you know, had written and prepared prior to going up. Um, a couple of things I picked up. Number one, there were some very confident people coming on that stage, but not oh, yeah. many, not many, but I couldn't believe the amount of on the opposite end of the spectrum. So many of them now, Mark, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but looking forward, you know, and I thought, wow, this is like, you know, I thought I'd be hearing like 90% would be going off to uni and 10%, but it was completely the opposite. I don't know if that's a COVID thing, but so there's these two extremes. There's these really kind of com overconfident, like, yeah, I'm going to take on the world, which is, I, I encourage, I think that's good as long as it doesn't bring, you know, it doesn't bring you down. And then there seems to be a ton of people which are like the you know, the, the, the folks struggling to know what they're going to do with their life, what, what on earth do they do next? And it's such yeah. an extreme, it feels like. I, I do I do wonder if that, that could be a, that COVID generation who, you know, had to school in lockdown, I, had to, yeah. you know, that's they've really been knocked for six. And I think also with climate change and everything else happening in the world, they're probably thinking, what's the point? You know, yeah. so, but well, there is a point. You know, and there's people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, who prob are probably in Scott's situation right now. Maybe they didn't show up to, you know, the entrance of the school with a can of beer at age 16, but there are definitely a lot of people kind of a bit lost right now and thinking, what can I do? Um, and the great thing about Scott's story is it shows that no matter what, what happens earlier on in life, you can always turn it around. The fact that he got that degree, the fact that he got into university without the qualifications and all the things you're meant to work through, I think teaches everyone a lesson that, yeah, just because there's a certain way of doing things doesn't yeah. mean it's the only way. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things um, my wife Claire and I have in common is we both did the same thing of going to a careers teacher at school. You remember? I don't know if they oh, even still have careers teachers, but um, no, you know, they have we computer both... programs now, Mark. They have right. computer oh, programs right. where you fill out form and it tells you what your top ten careers are going to be. Oh my god! Well, I mean, I, I remember going to uh, a careers teacher and saying, "I want to be an actor or a writer," uh, and once they'd finished laughing. Um, you know, there weren't many options. I remember for, and Claire said the same thing and they, they tried to talk her out of it. And if you try and talk Claire out of anything, that's just, you know, she digs her reels in all the more. Yeah. And, um, which I've learned over the years. And, um, <laughs> I remember for, for writing, I wanted to go and work at 2000 AD comic because I knew where it was in London. You know, it was in because the building was was um, Tharg's rocket in the comics, so I knew exactly <laughs> what building they were in, and um, I wanted to go. But they, it was just beyond their imagining. They, they, all the girls who wanted to do journalism uh, went to glossy magazines in London, but I ended up at the Leatherhead and Dorking Advertiser. Not that I'm bitter, but um, <laughs> it's a quality publication. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's lovely though is that Patrick Mills. I got to meet Patrick Mills, uh, one of the founders of 2000 AD, when we were doing um, Robot Overlords. Uh, so you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you're right, absolutely right. You will be told there is a path. There is a path you must tread, and we hear this in you know. Oh, you must get an agent, and you must do this. Exactly. You must do this. Or if you're going to self-publish, you must do this sort of advertising. Otherwise, you're a complete failure. And it's not. You will find your own way of doing it. And you might find a new way that no one's ever found or figured out before. And then you become a pioneer, you know? I mean, yeah. I remember we were talking to Philip C. Quaintrell, who mm-hmm. um, doesn't do any Facebook ads or marketing. <laughs> he just hires Brandon Sanderson's cover artist, you know, <laughs> and has an amazing newsletter and, and has sort yeah. of built it up from there, you know? So there's no one way of doing it. Don't let anyone ever sort of hem you in like that. This is one of the biggest discoveries we've made on this podcast over the years is you you're going to find your own path and and that's what and that's what education they it can it, it the educational route that we're meant to take will try to tell us this is how you're meant to do things yeah 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 but within outside of that what education can't teach you is that sense of never giving up that self sense of self belief that you can find a way even if it might not fit into the standards that society have laid down for you. And I think that's, you know, I think it's really important for people to remember that because a lot of people, I mean, I mean, we talk about like getting a degree um, and the importance of getting a degree. And you talked about, you know, some regrets that you had. And I've talked to a lot of people in a similar situation, people who dropped out of degrees partway through and regret that they didn't do it. And I, and I, I listened to Scott's story and I, I went through that route I went through, you know, I got, I got the grades. I went to uni. Um, I did a business management course. I got a first in my degree, offered a PhD and I went like, I'm done. I'm done with this education or I don't want to spend another three, four years. I don't regret turning that down um, because I've had more of that entrepreneurial spirit. I wanted to get out into the world and I'm, I, I might've even done that before uni if I'd decided to or been given the chance and so it's it's the bit that we always forget and this is the really important point of all this is that you're unique every single person listening you've got unique characters and qualities and some of those will fit perfectly into the system and brilliant go for it um but for many people you don't fit into that you're not you're the square peg in the round hole and that's to be celebrated because that's what diversity is that's why people have different music tastes and we don't all listen to the same piece of music it's why people read different genres and different books because everyone's different so celebrate your uniqueness and if it doesn't fit into the system that's okay but you need to find your way and you shouldn't get beaten up by everyone around you telling you what you should have done or how it should have turned out. But you've, you have to have that, you have to break through that sense of this imposter syndrome that we're going to talk about in a minute, because that's the thing that drags people down like, like you know, lead weights in the ocean. Sorry, you keep making me think of that bit in Life of Brian where he says, we're all different, we're all individuals. And some guys, I'm not. Um, <laughs> Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom in life of Brian Mark. Oh yes, there really is. There really is. That film taught me a lot. But it's it's it's, it's very easy for the world to drag drag people down. And um, I, I actually remember reading a really fascinating book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning, which should really be called Humankind's Search for Meaning nowadays. But the point was, this was a guy in a concentration camp, and everyone around him was dying, like literally falling over and, and not being able to survive. But he said, the one thing that you can't take away, and you can take away my dignity, you can take away my freedom, but you can't take away 
ultimately how I choose to react to any situation. And the way that he chose to react to his, the worst of the worst depravity that he experienced was he focused on something that kept him going, just kept focusing on it and focusing on it. And, and that was the thing that helped him be one of the only few survivors that came out of that concentration camp and then lived to tell the story. Um, and I, and obviously that's an extreme case, but for anyone who's struggling right now, who's, who's, not sure where they should be going. It's like, you know, it's how you choose to react to the current situation that's happening in the world. It's whether you choose to give up and, and go back to bed or drink another can of beer or whatever you're doing, um, or whether you're going to take, make today the day where you say, right, I remember that I'm, I actually make decisions. I can make decisions and I'm in control of how I react to things. And I'm, I'm no longer, and this is the biggest thing, is it's no longer going to blame society, blame the, I mean, everyone's blaming the government. Everyone does and has done forever. I've got, I've, I'm not a political animal, but it's as soon as we get into that whole mindset of blaming the government, blaming the benefits, blaming the cost of food, blaming the cost of gas, blaming this, blaming that, blaming inflation. It's like, that's not going to help your situation. The only thing that's going to help your situation is, right, this is what's happening. How do I choose to react to it? And if you choose to react to it in a positive way, that will only help your situation. And that's what we have. That's what we have individually. That's the power that we're given. And so many people either have never realized that or they've given up on it. So a bit of a, bit of a moment, but it's like a five-minute motivation, isn't it? But if you're in that situation, because we know there's a lot of people out there right now struggling. If you're in that situation, please sit down today and write down these words. I'm in control of how I react to everything that happens around me and everything that happens to me. How do I want to move forward in my life based on having that freedom of choice? That that came very close to a rant there, Mr. D. I was enjoying that. I was enjoying that very much. Yeah, it's yeah, very good. It, yeah, I mean, inspirational <laughs> rant. But yeah, it's yeah, important. Yeah, no, it's important because I think Scott, Scott's, I mean, Scott obviously had everything he needed to be that. I mean, he had all the natural talent, didn't he? Um, yeah. And it could have happened, you know, much, much earlier for him in some ways. I mean, but the fact that he broke through is awesome. I, I will say, as a counterpoint, not to get political or anything, but it, it, it does help when the powers that be make life a bit easier for you you know oh, he talked course. about he talked about a government scheme there that helped that was really interesting the, you know, wasn't it yeah, yeah, i mean yeah, actually yeah. no we always we always moan about everything you know politics but hearing that story like without yeah. without that connections um you know uh yeah thing that they had going there it, i mean that made that that made all the difference and yeah, it's easy to forget yeah, yeah. that there are a lot of things out there that are there to help people. If, but again, yeah. if you choose to take the opportunity. If you step up and take he, it, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, he could have yeah. just said, connections, sod that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of what I did when I went to, I went to university at a time when you could get a grant, so it was free. Yeah. Um, you know, there were no loans then, it was a grant. And I went to, I went, I was offered a place at Ripon and St. John in York, uh, which is an amazing university. But I went and did the tour and I just thought, I've had enough of this. Mm. I, I've just had enough of education. I want to. I was reading a lot of David Mamet at the time. He's very down on education. I was like, I'm going to get out there and do my own plays and stuff, which has got me where I am today. Um, so there's a the David Lee Stone episode. We talked about the trouser legs of time that Terry Pratchett. There, there might be an alternative universe where I went to uni and I'm massively successful. You know, and uh, you know, uh, I'd like you to went thank to the uni. academy. Well, you went to uni and you. And you ended up doing something completely different in non-creative yeah. arts and being yeah. absolutely desperately sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. That's, so who knows? Knows? who knows? Who knows? But we're in the here yeah. and that. We are in the here. We are. And 
the now. So it's brilliant. Like that. So let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about um, peer pressure because I think what was really interesting that Scott said was this idea of you know where he grew up and his friend group. What he did, what he was trying to do, was completely different from most people. I mean. You know, talked about most people are either in trades or dealing drugs, which is which is fascinating. Um, I think it's 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 doubly hard, isn't it, for somebody when when all their mates are like, "What what what are you think of being a writer?" I mean, it must yeah. because I think especially at a younger age where we're very influenced by our peers and what our peers are going to do. So it's it's fascinating to see how you know he was able to break away from that and keep sticking to what he knew that he was good at and wanted to do. Yeah. I've, I've, I do have a friend who uh, sort of, I don't see him that often, but whenever I see him, it's like, all right, Shakespeare. It's like, <laughs> every time, really? All right, Shakespeare. Oh, well done. You know one writer. Thank you. Um, Love it. So, yeah, there is that. Uh, yeah, it is tough. If you want to be a little bit different, it is tough. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean being a writer. It might be, you might want to be a, dancer you might i mean we've all seen billy elliot you know you watch billy elliot that is the classic example yeah you know exactly. coming from a, a family where everyone's a minor there's an expectation that you have to be a certain kind of person and then you want to you want to dance and you want to dance ballet you know so yeah. it's extraordinary so yeah it's um there is inspirational stuff out there and it is it is tough but this is you know like you say this is where the agency where you say no, actually, I I enjoy this. I'm good at this. I want to do this. You, you know, and if you're coming from a background that doesn't encourage that, I was lucky. I had teachers and parents and family who encouraged it, but it's it's all the more difficult, you know. And at least that thing we'll, we'll talk about as well, you know, the imposter syndrome. So, do I belong here? If I don't see people like me in publishing or in filmmaking or in music or whatever, do I do I belong here? Am I supposed to be here? Well, let's talk about that now because imposter syndrome comes up frequently and, and it should come up more frequently, in fact, because if I were to take a sample of my coaching sessions that I've been doing for many, many years now, the amount of times it comes up uh, is quite, quite incredible. And, it, and imposter syndrome is this, I mean, for people that aren't fully aware of what it means, it's this idea of, of basically when you find yourself in a situation where things are starting to happen for you or you want to move into a situation where you'd like to become a writer or become the president or become it you feel so out of your comfort zone and you feel so lacking the qualifications or lacking actually the experience is what it's all about but it is a complete catch-22 because every single person in this world who's ever done anything started doing that thing with zero experience like it's just a catch-22 so i think on one level every single person experiences it on what to one degree or other it's just whether or not and this is the key it's whether or not imposter syndrome gets such a big overwhelming feeling that you kind of like think i can't do this and you think i'm not qualified and you and you never try or you give up very early on when it just feels like you know you you shouldn't be where you are well i I had a visit from Auntie Imposter Syndrome just last week. So I was in a bookshop and the bookseller was saying the most wonderful things about the Woodville books and just going on and on about how wonderful they were and how I'm, you know, blah, on this and that and the other. And normally my ego is very open for that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, bring it on. Thank you very much. Uh, but it's weird because, um, 
One, you know, I'm still trying to finish this bloody book, book four. Mm-hmm. You know, the ending is, I've done that thing where I'm coming to the ending and the writing is really slowed down. So I'm struggling with that. Um, I hadn't been paid for a while as well, you know, for any writing in quite some time. Mm. So I'm thinking, and and you've also got over the bump of the book launch where it's all celebration. Mm. And so, you know, you're in that weird little pit afterwards where you're thinking, uh, what happens now? And someone's going, yeah, your book's amazing and you're this author and you're doing this. And there's a part of me thinking, oh, but I'm a complete fraud. Uh, <laughs> I know this is all sort of sham. It doesn't make, oh dear. Uh, so, you know, he, I totally had it. And um, I was sort of in complete denial that I was any good. Uh, and my weirdly, my daughter was there as well, sort of looking at me, giving me a funny look. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, setting a terrible, setting a terrible example to my daughter. So, um, so yeah, it was it was a weird moment. It didn't, of course, it didn't last. You know, Which, um, <laughs> but it's really <laughs> it interesting. It's fascinating you say that, Mark, as well, because I think a lot of people think imposter syndrome is something that happens at the beginning of your career doesn't it happens at every stage of your career every time you level up like you know think about mario so every time you level up and you kind of like oh this is new i've never had this before this feels a little bit too much it kicks in again and like you said though the key is how long does it last for and are you able to kind of like you know accept it and go actually no maybe there's some truth in what they're saying here this is great it's interesting you mentioned the level up thing because ghost of ivy barn has had the best reception of any of the books you know crow folk it was new it was a bit strange uh people liked it babes in the wood it was kind of okay there's another one but it's a bit different it's a bit strange but what's been lovely because there's been a blog tour and i'm getting reviews the review so many of the reviews are starting oh I love this world. I love these characters. It's so good to be back. And that momentum, because when I pitched this as a three-book series, and we've talked about how if you want to make money, do a series, you know. I'm, I've now got to that point. This is a milestone, a sort of one of those vague milestones where it's like the series is established now mm. with three books in and people are liking it. And, and I'm now getting messages on social media going, I can't wait for the next one, you know, which is great. But there's also, so you've reached that milestone, you've got that achievement, and it's like, oh, shit, what next? Sorry, I keep swearing. Two swears (laughs) in one episode. Um, uh, It's like, oh, golly, what next? So, yeah, it's, um, I I kind of understand why it's there, because you're right, it's kind of levelling up. And I guess, you know, if you become a bestseller or if you win an award or if it gets made into a TV series, you'll yeah. get that as well. I promise you, Mark, if you, if, you sell a, if you sell a million copies of your series, <laughs> when you hit yeah. a million copies, you'll be like imposter syndrome. You'll yeah. be like, oh. And every yeah. single person experiences it. And I think it's actually a very important moment in everyone's careers. And I say careers, plural. Like, it doesn't matter what you're doing in life. Imposter syndrome will kick in at the moment where you're either leveled up and you don't realize it or you're about to level up and you don't realize it or you just don't realize it full stop because Mm. it's just your every day and you're just getting on with what you do and it's those milestone moments and for you it's like you know that moment where that person's talking to you because you're at a book launch and it's a big moment in your in your year in your life that's when it hits and i think a lot of people um 
you know, the day-to-day grind of writing the book, there's no, there's no imposter syndrome moments in, in those you know, minute-to-minute sentences that you're writing. It's always when something happens. So if you think of anyone who goes up on stage to receive a, a, a Lifetime Achievement Award, they're going to be like, what am I doing on this stage? It's like, this is crazy. I'm, I'm, you know, so it's actually imposter syndrome is an incredibly healthy thing to experience. And I think that if anyone feels that, what it means is you're just outside of your comfort zone. You haven't caught Mm. up with yourself as to where your career is now at. And it's pretty important that you, you, you move there quickly. And then once you move there, and then it, it gives you even more rocket fuel. It's like, bring it on. Because then you think, well, what can I do next? And, and it's always about building, building on things. It's always about foundations, then bricks, then roof, then, you know, beyond that, you know, what do you do? It's, it's such an important thing. So I celebrate imposter syndrome. I love it when people tell me that if they're experiencing it, because I'm like, well, congratulations, <laughs> you just leveled up. <laughs> it's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. But... Talk about phone calls that could change your life. Now, I, I love this because I often, I think about phone calls that have changed my life. This so I can give you many examples of crazy phone calls. But this one phone call that Scott got where he was on the run from debtors and almost didn't pick the phone up. Yeah, and that was the phone call that changed his life. I mean, um, can you think of a phone call that changed your life, Mark? Um, well, there was the, not quite the same, but the Skype call that we had. That yeah. was, that was yeah. one. Weirdly, yeah. uh, that conversation we had about the whole Ghostbusters thing at, at Waterloo came up on my Facebook memories today. <laughs> yeah, no way so today. The, and yeah, and that's where that's oh, where that so all. That, so it would be six years ago today that I I first w- emailed you to say, "Hey, Mark, how are you doing?" Yeah. <laughs> right, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, phone calls that change your life. If you have a phone call, folks listening to this, if you have a phone call that changed your life. In, in the in the writing world, the publishing world, um, tell us about it because it's these moments. I often think again about sliding doors, but the fa- I love the fact he was on the run from debtors and like had he had not picked up that phone call because of all the challenges he had, but that was like an escape route possibly from all of the things that he was experiencing. And yet, because he was in that world of like avo- you know avoiding phone calls, he may have not picked it up. And mm. it's like moments in that in our life like that, that we, we look back on after the event and think, wow, just think about what would have happened if I hadn't have done that or what would have happened if I, um, you know, if, 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 you know, my battery had run out or whatever it might, or I didn't have enough credit on my phone to take, to, to, to pick up the phone call. Cause in Canada, you have to pay for incoming calls as well as outgoing. I don't know if you know about that. Bonus. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I can tell, I can tell you about one call that I missed and didn't call back. And that's always been a big, what if, thing mm. um because uh, a friend of mine a guy called simon simon jesse he worked for an editing suite in uh, wandsworth and he was editing commercials and music videos and stuff like that and upstairs was a filmmaker a guy called vadim jean who had made a low budget film called leon the pig farmer which had been a sort of a you know an indie hit it, it was made for two shillings and sixpence and it actually made all its money back and he was upstairs and my friend simon said oh i've got a friend called mark who's an actor and um, Vadim rang my house. My dad answered and I was out. And dad said, oh, this guy, this film director called. And I never called back. Right? I, oh. I bottled it. The imposter syndrome. I, yeah. I thought, well, what am I going to talk to you about? Hello, I'm an actor. Put me in your film. <laughs> you know, uh, it was, and I yeah. never called back. And um, 
you know, I, I always thought, oh, God, what would have happened? Anyway, Vadim went on to make the Sky TV adaptations of, a, of uh, the Terry Pratchett books. And Golantz did the tie-in books. And I met Vadim years later. And I told him this and um, he was very sweet about it. And he was like, he kind of confirmed that, you know, he wasn't really in a position to sort of give me work, but, you know, who knows what might have come out of it. But anyway, yeah. uh, I did meet him. I did sort of make amends with that. Um, so, yeah, it's just weird. You're right. Those what if moments. I think the, the lesson I've learned since then is always cool. Always call people up. Always drop those authors a line, those actors a line, those producers a line, because what they're going to do, they're going to say no thank you. That's the worst yeah. that can happen. Even if you have a lovely chat with someone like Scott did, and 10 years later, that very same person, and, and, and that's happened so often. I'm oh, sure everyone yeah. was thinking, oh, yeah, I think of it. And it does. It happens Especially in publishing, it's such a small industry, you know. So he was rejected by an editor. He took a tra train journey that cost two hundred and ten pounds. Yeah, you know. Uh, I mean, like about four hundred three hundred fifty dollars for people with change over in North America. Just to put that in, that's like a, that's more expensive than some a flight to Europe in many cases. It isn't is. It, Mark? it is. Oh, I mean, don't <laughs> get me started on the trains in this country. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know, but. The editor remembered him 10 years later. I mean, mm. publishing is a very small industry. People have got very long memories and they remember talent when they see it. Might not be right for them at the time, but it might be right yeah. for them further down the line. It again comes back to what we're saying about persistence. You, if you want this, you've really got to hang in there. Too many people see opportunities that come up as opportunities lost if they don't, if nothing comes out of them. The way I see life is every single time you meet someone, every single time you have a conversation, that could be an acorn for the future. If, you know, sometimes, you know, you plant a plant a seed, it doesn't come up instantly in most cases. Sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to grow veggies right now and, and, and things like squash take forever to come up and my, my zucchinis, yeah. my courgette plants are going bonkers. It's like, it just depends on the seed. And if you just look at them as opportunities, um, that may or may not come to fruition in the way you expect them to, often there'll be something else down the road if if that was meant to be. But it's about actually just doing that meeting, making that phone call, sending that email, um, and like you say, persistence, and, and being mm. open to what might come from that in the future rather than, oh, I didn't get any. It's like that classic rejection letter. Everyone's like, rejection letter. And they always say, don't they, in the rejection letters, you know, but, but you know, a lot of them will say, but please do send me some more. Yep. Of your stuff, they mean it, and and they won't put that in if they if they really don't want any. Honestly, they won't. So follow it up. Give them see that as a positive. See that as a okay. I've been rejected, but I've got a, a green light now to send that person something else. Which means the time that you send it to them next time, you're not a cold calling. You know, you know, a, a attempt to like try and get your name in front of them on your and your words. They're like, oh yeah, I remember this person. I really like their stuff. It wasn't right for us at the time, and boom. You know, who knows what can happen. So just about persistency and and always moving forward um yes. and then there was this massive moment i think for scott which was this and I'm, i can imagine so many people in this situation do you polish and polish and polish or do you start again or mm. start something new mm. how many people must face that moment how many people are sitting on a novel that they've been working for like three five ten years and are constantly asking themselves that question yeah yeah. Well, you know, it's 
onwards and upwards as well. You know, you just you you just have to well, persistence. You've got to keep writing. I mean, yes, you can. The opportunity there is to, if it's rejected roundly, then you can self-publish or you can trunk it, put it away, maybe come back to it in a few years or put it out there. And you know, so it's 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 up to you. But you you've got to keep playing the game. You know, you've got to keep writing. And what I thought was great was this thing where he had the opportunity to work with another. Uh, author, a guy called Gary Bell for this book, Beyond Reasonable Doubt. And I know people say, you know, what can an agent do for me? You know, the, do they do the deal? Do they get me work? But actually, this is something that agents do quite a bit that goes quite kind of unsung, is they can pair up authors or pair an author with a personality who might not be a writer but can help you write this story. Uh, something similar happened to me quite early on in my career where I worked on a project with the Duchess of Northumberland. Have I bored you with that one yet? I, no, have I, have I, I want to hear this you story. You sure? Okay. So uh, very early on, because um, uh, Duchess of Northumberland, you've got Annick Castle, amazing castle. It has a poison garden in there. And uh, it's extraordinary. It's got all these, it's the, the only one of its kind in the country, might even be the only one of its kind in Europe. And she had done an illustrated book for the gift shop uh, about a boy called Weed who can talk to the poisons and knows all about them. And it was this very charming book. But she wanted to do a series of novels. And my agent uh, pitched me for it. Uh, saying, yeah, Mark writes sort of fantastical stuff, but um, and he understands this sort of thing. So, and we had a meeting, and uh, it was all over the phone at the time, and we clicked, and I got the gig. So the idea was I would um, co-write the book. So the Duchess would send me ideas, and uh, and Jane, Jane Northumberland, uh, I knew her as Jane. So on the emails, it's dear Jane, dear Jane. And she sent me a fantastic book of poisons, you know, and uh, we were making notes and we we had all these great ideas. And then I went up and met her, went up to Annick Castle and uh, she gave me a personal tour of the gardens. Um, what was weird was that I'm calling her Jane all the time. As you're going around, all the staff are going, your grace, your grace, your grace. I was like... <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, maybe I should call her that. Do I call her that? Um, and then we went on a, a, a trip in her car from the castle to uh, a monastery where the um, monks used to make um, sort of uh, medicines out of some of the poisons. Oh, wow. um, a car journey there and back. Never killed so many animals in one car journey. Grouse were just throwing pheasants, just throwing themselves in front of the car. A rabbit was a runner. Remember, we ran over a rabbit, and she said he looked a bit mixy and kept driving. You know, so, so, it was like, so yeah, it was. Uh, but she was lovely. She was really lovely. But what happened was, uh, so I came up with a, a story idea, put together a pitch. We we're all ready to go, and what happened then was Twilight happened. And Twilight was all about doomed romance. And suddenly romance was in the air. And she, the, basically the project, they thought, okay, we need to write a romance. And so I was out and they brought in a romance novelist to, to do them. No way. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there oh are a couple gosh. of books. Uh, they were talking about a big series. They only did two books in the end. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things. But it was kind of, if it had happened, if it had come out, it could have been, you know, smash it. Or whatever, it could have done big things for my career. It would have been the first thing that ever been published because this is way before Robot Overlords or any of that. Mm. Um, so yeah, it could have been a big, big thing, a big step up, but it it didn't happen. But it is something that agents, when they've got an author on their books, they might go, you know, do you know anything about X, Y, Z, or do you have an expertise? Because when you first meet an agent, they will say, certainly 
edited this for me. So got, got any expertise? What could you write? But what could you talk about for an hour without pausing for breath? You know, mm-hmm. uh, so think about those things that you have an expertise in um, that you could, you know, perhaps uh, bore people to death with or earn money by writing a book about it. <laughs> so, um, so if anyone wants the uh, comprehensive history of Pink Floyd, I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Excellent. Well, thank you, Scott, for, for your incredible story and your honesty and uh, Amazing. no doubt inspiring a ton of people out there as well, because, you know, often they're you know, the silent majority out there who are, who are, you know, struggling day to day and they hear a story like Scott's and they think, you know what, actually I can do this. I yeah. am a writer, even though Scott still doesn't believe it, but we'll work on him with that. We'll maybe get him again. <laughs> <laughs> See if we can convince Definitely him. Is. He Brilliant really is. stuff. So Mark, what's been happening on social media this week? Social media. Yes. So thanks to everyone. So um, last week you mentioned we had a new patron, uh, Jenny Williams. And I just wanted to say, because Jenny came onto the BXP group uh, on Facebook and she was asking for a beta reader. And immediately, you know, she got a couple of offers from people in the group who were willing to read her book. And um, it was so lovely to see people say, welcome to the group. Lovely to see you, that kind of thing. And she says she she was just like, this is great because I'm used to Reddit forums, which are a bit like the Wild West. So it's, it's just to say, if you're looking for something that isn't like Reddit, Come and join us on Patreon. You know, it's uh, it's it's not like that at all. Join our Facebook group. Um, public declarations now. Uh, Rachel Rachel Howes uh, put in a, dec- a public declaration uh, for her book, The Porcelain Hand. She was going to get it into beta readers before the end of the month. I put it in my diary. I checked in a few days before. All on target. She said the the porcelain hand went to beta readers on twenty eighth of June. I've already write, had one bunch of feedback, and her poetry collection is on target too. Um, so yeah, keep going, Rachel. You know this is what this 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 team is all about. It's all fantastic stuff. Uh, also, weirdly, Mister D, something else popped up in my public declarations reminders. Um, uh, Mister D is to publish the Marshmallow Bear uh, at the end of July. Um, I know you're a busy man, Mr. D. How's how's that coming along? Well, it's it's going it's not going as quickly as I wanted to, obviously. <laughs> but but um I'm yeah. in the process of um pitching it to authors, uh, to agents. So Wicked. But children's agents, it's a different kettle of fish. Oh yes. Different kettle yes. of fish, isn't it? it really so, is. Yeah. yeah, but it's still it's still in the go. I don't that I think the declaration was I wanted to publish it um either independently or find an author, an agent slash publisher by that date. So I've still, I've still at the time of recording, I've still got a couple of weeks. Fingers crossed. Excellent. Absolutely. What's interesting, it says, see episode 330, which was our episode with Matthew Ralph, who's a children's author and illustrator. So uh, clearly you were inspired by one of our guests, Absolutely. which is amazing. But yeah, yeah um, fingers crossed on that, Mr. D. Let me know if you want to move that date, because the other thing is public declaration dates, Movable feast, absolutely. Um, and we do ask people to send in their favourite bookshops as well. Now, this is uh, this is a sweet one. This is Jackie Kirkham sent this in. She said, here's one for best bookshops in the world, but this one is a ghost bookshop. It closed down years ago, along with the library, was one of my favourite childhood haunts, a tiny top shop that packed in so much, greetings cards on the right as you walked in, stationery on the left where Mr Wharton stood with a till, and then the really magic bit beyond the stationery, a narrow corridor with floor to ceiling bookshelves on either side. And they did a big trade in study guides uh, uh, on the left at head height, which uh, Jackie says got me through English lit O-level, uh, though the rest was fiction. And uh, it, it's a shop called uh, W. 
D. Wharton's bookseller in Wellingborough. And uh, Jackie found a lovely blog post about that. Where I'll post a, a link in the show notes about that. So if you've, thank you so much for sharing that, Jackie. It just feels like a wonderful bookshop. And um, if folks, if you've got a favorite bookshop, let us know. We'll talk about it on here. Could be a ghost bookshop from the past, but if it's one in the present, let us know. We'll give them a shout. We'll give them a plug. Brilliant stuff. Excellent. And if you have a dream declaration or public declaration you would like to make as well, that we'll read out on the podcast, put it in the diary, you can simply pop along to the website. There is a contact form there. And Mark and I do read every email that we get through that contact form. We can't promise to respond to all of them. We will try. But, but tell us your declaration or... If this podcast has helped you in any way, any of the interviews, if you've had one line that's stuck in your head that somebody once said on this podcast and changed your life, we want to hear about it. We want to read that story out as well for you um, because those are the moments, um, you know, those the, the, like we talked earlier about that, those important phone calls, those are the moments um, which we love to celebrate on this podcast as well. And whilst you're on the, whilst you're on the website, uh, if you'd like to get uh, the weekly bestseller experiment newsletter about the new uh, show that we've got, what you'll learn from it and all the other exciting things happening, bestseller experiment HQ, uh, click on the newsletter tab uh, in the navigation, put your email address in and we will send you that email. And Mr. Say, how can people find us on socials? It's easy peasy lemon squeezy. On Facebook, we are Bestseller Experiment. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Bestseller XP. Uh, find us there. Drop us a line. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe. Please give us a rating or a review. Go to your writer's group. Tell us, tell them how wonderful it was hearing Scott's story and the stories of all the other hundreds, hundreds of authors who've been on before and um, their incredible stories and how that might have inspired you. And then just get more people listening, more people writing books, more voices being heard. Can Absolutely. only be a better thing. Fantastic news. And if you would also like to get the writing habit of a lifetime, if you're struggling with your writing day to day, if you wished somehow you'd be able to finish that book this year and you still haven't really got stuck into it, you need the 200 word challenge. Folks, this works. It's 200 words a day. Work for me. 15 minutes of your life each day. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast. 200wordchallenge.com. That's what you get, where you go to to sign up. It's a free challenge and it works. We've had so many incredible success stories. We, uh, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast, but go sign up. And if you'd like to level up, if you'd like to take it to the next level, then the place to go to is academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. That is the bestseller academy, which you will get coaching from Mr. Stay and I every month. You will get access to over 30 incredibly deep dive courses and hundreds of hours of extra material and archive coaching over the last two years. <laughs> so much there, folks. Crikey, yeah. Plus an incredible community of like-minded people, which we were talking about on this today's show. You know, it's about the people you hang out with. And in the writing world, you really have to choose your friends and you have to choose your community very carefully because they'll either drag you down or they'll bring you up. And the academy is where you get brought up. We're opening the doors at the beginning of September for the new academic year. Uh, if you'd like to get in on that, join the wait list today. Go along to the website, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. You, you, you are a Thompson Twins fan, Mr. D. I, I love Thompson you're a big Twins. Fan of the you make me up, whoa, <laughs> Actually, take me up to the higher ground. I do love the Thompson Twins. I've been on a bit of an 80s bent. I set up an 80s playlist the other day and I did go back through a lot of the bands that I loved in the 80s and I went to Thompson Twins and so many bands out there, I'm like, whoa, this is like, you know, 
you could hear it today and it had ha- apart from the dodgy synths it hasn't dated but thompson twins love a dodgy synth <laughs> the thompson twins sounds really dated i was like oh really i thought it would be like but it does it sounds it, it definitely is very nostalgic Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, still waiting for someone to do some good covers of their old music. Tom's doing <laughs> absolutely brilliant. Anyway, excellent, oh, God, folks. God. Have a great writing week, everyone. Mr. Stay, I hope you have a fantastic week this week. Uh, enjoy too, the sir. summer if you're on this side of the hemisphere. Uh, wrap up warm if you're on the other. And, <laughs> in, and keep writing, folks. Keep writing. Remember what Scott said. You know, you just have to keep going. Keep on going. And uh, if you're on, if you run from the debtors, then just at least listen to the voicemail. Eh? <laughs> Brilliant. Yes. So, Mr. Stay, have a great week, and it's a goodbye from Mark One, and a goodbye from Mark Two. Goodbye. goodbye. <laughs>